Hey, Lauren. Hey, Deidre. So, this is a special time. Yes. We are actually together in the same place. I know, it's true. That hasn't happened since... I don't even know. It's been so long. I know this has been the longest. These, uh, what, four months, five months have been the longest year ever. And um, we're capturing the rain. We're outside capturing the sounds of the rain as we prepare to share a beautiful story from someone you know personally. Yes, this one is, it was a shock in the sense that he wanted to tell his story and he was ready to tell a story. And we both talked to him months ago. And he said, ah, you know, we'll see. And then just out of the clear blue, he texted me and he said, I'm ready. And it's, it's good. This is my dance partner. Um, my Latin ballroom dance partner, and it's it's a we've just done some amazing things together in the past few months, um, and so yeah, I am glad to hear his story and that he told it. So um, I was born Luis Perez in Bronx, in the Bronx, New York City. Um, I'm an 80s baby, late 80s, so 1988. <laughs> I was in the Bronx for the first six years of my life. Um, I have four siblings. Um, so my parents um, had four kids together and my mom had my oldest brother before, um, you know, before she met my dad. My mom's from Puerto Rico. Um, Calle, and my dad is is from Dominican Republic, and they met here in the U.S. in New York City, and that's how I came about. Really, those aren't my only siblings. I have, in total, in total, there's 10 of us. No, 11, excuse me. So I'll explain um, a little bit, in a, you know, as I go along, because um, I know I only named, uh, well, not named, but I mentioned that there were five of us. So when I was five, so right before I turned six, my mom passed away. Um, and my mom was the kind of person that everyone in the neighborhood would describe as, you know, the person that threw all the block parties, that, that was my mom. She threw all the parties. She was the life of the party. Um, she brought people together. And, you know, at the age of five, you don't really, at this point, it's like memories of memories upon memories. But I do remember these memories of dancing and just having, just watching my family, having a ton of fun cooking, you know, spending time outside. But I do remember as if it was yesterday, the last day that I did see my mom. And it was a very vivid memory of like me going to the corner store with my sister and my dad worked there, so the guy told us, he said, you know, something's going on with your mom. And he was the kind of guy that, or person that would joke around about things that you shouldn't joke around about. So we thought he was, and as a kid, I was just following my older sister, you know, so I'm going based off of her interaction with him. And he said he was serious, and we went up this really, really, really steep hill, and I saw the ambulance, and that morning before I went to school, I, that was the last time I saw my mom. So 
it's a really long story, but my dad, like anyone else, didn't take it well. And I remember him trying to sustain. You know, I just remember seeing him as a little kid, like stumbling in the house, you know, all types of late at night with my sister and my brother, you know, walking, walking in with him, holding him, supporting him, taking off his shoes and everything. And so he took it really, really hard. And then one day, which I didn't find out until 20 something years later, someone called Child Protective Services. And that same day, actually that night was like one o'clock in the morning. So you just imagine you're in your home as a child and then someone who you don't know just comes and gets you, you know? And my dad did try, I will give him that. He tried to like go to church, get us in the church. There were people, I remember for a period of time before we went into the foster care system, I remember there were people that took care of us, not all at one time, but separately. Um, but this night came and Child Protective Services came and got all four of us. Uh, my older brother, he was 18, so he didn't come with us. So the four of us were put, were placed in the van and we were taken off. So I was pretty frightening. And I was in the foster care system. Well, we all were with the exception of my sister because she ran away. But the three boys, we were in, so I'm five. My younger brother was two and my older brother was eight. So we were in the foster care system for a while. And I just remember like always being at church despite where I was, it didn't matter where I went or which home we, we went to, we were always in the church. Even when it was someone who wasn't a good person because um, there was one family who just, they weren't, they weren't good people. Um, so we were still in the church at that time. And before we made it into our final home, I remember being told by, by our foster parent that, and he was Latino, he was just like, you know, if you ever meet a black person in your life, don't trust them because they're gonna hurt you. And I remember his exact words were, they will take like the end of a, the, of, of a mop stick and like shove it up your, you know. So I say all that because I, the three of us landed in what I consider my family now. And so we're brought to, the, to this home again, like any other time, you know, and it's kind of like, okay, who are, this, who are these people? You don't trust the people because you've experienced certain things at other homes. So, and on top of that, you know, who walks, who, who walks into the living room when we arrive is my mother, who's a black woman. As a child, I remember what that guy told me. He told me to be careful about Black people, you know, so make a long story short, it's very uncommon for three boys, the ages that we were, to be adopted by one family. Doesn't happen. You know, it, it doesn't happen often. Most of the times you're, you're either put into a group home um, or you're split up into different homes. But my mom, which was, I'm kind of skipping over, but 
my mom is from Jamaica. So we land, we're here in a Jamaican home and it's like a, it's like a culture shock because you're like, I'm not used to this food. I'm not used to Patois. I'm not, I don't understand what you're saying, you know? And if you have a, if you're from the Caribbean or if you're Jamaican, you know, if someone says they're gonna put some licks on your backside, it doesn't mean that they're gonna lick you. It means that they're gonna, they're gonna hit you. So it was a learn, we had to learn a whole different culture um, but my mom, who I consider my angel, who always kept us in church, um, every single Sunday, it was not an option, it was not an option. Uh, my mom, she, she, she saved us, you know, and I didn't find out until later on in my life when I asked her why us, you know, like she didn't adopt anyone else. She had many foster kids, but she never adopted anyone else. And I remember her telling me, you had nowhere to go every other child that I've fostered had somewhere to go. You had nowhere to go. You all, the three of you had nowhere to go. So, you know, with my new family, um, which is odd saying it now, like new family, I will say this, I still didn't have like a father figure, but I did have women who surrounded me and supported me my whole entire life. And I just remember like as a kid bouncing from home to home, cause this, at, this, at that point, before we got adopted, which was in 2000 and no, it wasn't 2000, 1999, before we were adopted, you know, we were bouncing from home to home. So your mentality going into a new home is like, okay, what do I need to do to survive? You know, what do I need to do to survive to, for my siblings to survive? That's kind of that's the mode I was in. So in this new home, I was like, what do I need to do to survive? Do, do I need to like, and this is true. I, I, do I need to pretend so that I can get what I, what I need, which I knew for myself at a young age. I just knew that education was the route that I wanted to take. I was like, for me, being successful would be the first person in my birth family to get a high school diploma. So I just, that, I kept my eyes on the prize and I really didn't know that this was my family until my early 20s. So I was with my family at the age of eight. You know, that's when we first went into our final home. And I was adopted at 12. And I didn't know until my early 20s that this was my real family. Because uh, it took that long for me to get and understand what family was. For a long time, I was really, really upset. I was upset that my dad and my mom, she actually broke the rules. She bent the rules. She gave him, because if you don't know, in the foster care system, your visitation is basically, you have to follow the law. You have to follow what the caseworker tells you your visitation time is. But my mom, she gave my dad you know, her number and said, hey, call anytime call anytime you want to see your kids and I was upset with him for a very 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 long time extremely long time but growing up was different I know more about Jamaican culture than my own um, birth cultures and I'm proud of that and I love that about um, myself and um, if you <laughs> a Jamaican mom you don't you just don't mess with all right my mom anyone knows like she 
had the catwalk. You, you just didn't hear her when she when she walked up on you. You just didn't, <laughs> you know. So you better, you should, you know, you need to be following rules at all times. Um, and growing up with her and my family, I just there were so many things that I would get upset about. You know, the little things your mom says, like watch the friends that you keep. You can do better if you bring in a um, a grade that isn't a hundred. She's always like, you can do better, you know. Um, and all of these things came into fruition. Like it made sense later on in my life. Um, so I was the first person out of my birth family to graduate high school. And I always tell younger people, I graduated high school with zero applications in. I barely made it through my senior year. I was like the ideal student any any other like any other year but my senior year I struggled the most um zero applications in but what really got me through school was and I know I'm kind of jumping back a little bit but was running track that's what got me that was my therapy when I was younger I ran track um that released all of my emotions I was pretty much like a really quiet kid I had a few friends um I had a really small group of friends and I was extremely quiet, but like, I, you know, cool, calm, and collected. So I graduated high school, and I just remember that day, I knew that my mom was there with me that day. I just knew, like, I was sitting there, um, bef like, before they called my name, and I'm like, I know you're with me. You know, I just, I just knew it's a feeling that, that you get. Um, so even though she was physically not there, she was there. And my dad... <laughs> He, he actually was there as well. So I graduated high school. I went to art school. I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I think I picked up a camera and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. But I never had a conversation about college. I didn't know. I just never had that conversation even with my siblings now. So um, again, I, I mentioned there's 11 of us in total. So on my adopted side, I have one, two, three, four, five, five, siblings and one passed away so that's six um and even though I had all this amazing support I never had a conversation about college like a really fruitful conversation so I just picked up a camera that summer I think like a few days after I graduated and I said I'm going to art school <laughs> and I went to art school and let's just say that a two-year degree turned into five I, I enrolled, so right after high school, I went to the Art Institute of Atlanta. And so it was right like a month after I graduated. And I did not graduate until 2012. I dropped out like a year and change in because several things were going on. Um, but I just, I didn't, I wouldn't say I wasn't prepared for college. Um, I kind of got in there and I did my thing and I passed my classes. But I think I just, I, well, the, the truth is I got distracted. Um, I got completely distracted by just different things of relationship, um, making money and all that. And so I remember hanging around the wrong people and I got into, I got into some trouble. And it changed my life because I lost everything. I lost my job that I had, which was as a, as a caretaker at a senior living facility. I lost my apartment, but I didn't lose my family and I didn't lose God. 
um, I lost everything else and I thought it was over. I thought, you know, here, you know, like for, and that's another thing, my biggest fear for a very long time was the fear of failure. That was my biggest fear. And so I pretty much thought it was over for me, like, okay, my future's done for. And I just remember like reading Psalms and that's what my mom told me. And I started working like three jobs. Um, I couldn't go back to my previous job, but I started working three jobs. And I went back to school and I finished the associate's degree. I made beautiful art, which was very, very therapeutic. I remember again, I was raised in a family where my mom was always like, you could bring in a 99. And if it wasn't a hundred, she would say, she would say, good job, you can do better. So I got my associates, again, five years, <laughs> five years. And I remember the day I told her, and I think she was under the impression that I was getting a, a bachelor's because it took so long. You know, I remember the day I got my associates, like, hey, mom, I got my associates. And she was like, oh, I thought you were getting a bachelor's. And I could hear the disappointment in her voice. But at the same time, I, I feel like in that moment when I showed her the diploma, the degree, excuse me, she was happy because out of, out of all of us, I was the one that went and got, you know, went and did it. It's such a long story. I tell her, you need to write your own book. And she says she's been working on writing her book for a long time, but she never finished elementary school, you know, because she had to work. As a kid, she had to go and work to support her family. So she always says, she's all in the past and she says it now for my younger sister, my biggest dream is to live long enough to see you walk across the stage. She has said that to all of us. My biggest dream is to see you walk across the stage. And I think that helps me because when someone says that to you, you kind of visualize yourself. And, and I'm a true believer that visualization is a big deal. Like you close your eyes and you picture yourself doing something, you're gonna get it. You're gonna make it happen. My mom has supported me so many, many different times, even when I turned um, as a, I rebelled. I surely did. Even as I rebelled, she never turned her back on me. She was always there, always, always, always there to support me. And so that's what brought my whole life experience is what brought me to where I am now um, and to my profession. So I realized during my downfall of losing all these tangible things, the way that I survived it was through my family support system. And not everyone has that, you know? So I said to myself, I wanna be able to create or help someone else discover support systems, even if it's not their family, you know, maybe it's services or other people. That's what I wanna do. So that's what led me to Georgia State University. And I remember going to Georgia State and I was like knocking on the door of the art studio because I'm like, I don't want to go back to school and start from the beginning. I'll just get my, my um, bachelor's in photography. And I was like, if I get a no or if something funny happens, I'll just do social work because that's what I've, that's my backup. Knocking on the door and the guy's like, yes, we're in the middle of a class. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, but I just finished at the Art Institute. 
I want to get into this program. What do I need to do? And he's like, well, you're basically going to have to start from the beginning because this is a this is a fine arts program and the art institute is a commercial program. And I was like, oh, okay, not doing that. You know, if I'm going to start all over again, I might as well do something. I might as well do social work. So I applied. I I got in with a 2.59, which is terrible. <laughs> 2.59. And Georgia State was everything I needed. I worked to pay my tuition off because I didn't have enough funds. And I applied for so many scholarships. Um, and I just remember being like in, at Georgia State and doing my prereqs. And then I got into my program. I was like, you know what? This is it for me. Once I get my bachelor's, this is it. But I want to say that I do truly believe it was God who, who was, when I, when I was knocking on that door, getting, trying to get into that art studio, it was God who told me that day what I was supposed to do. So fast forward, I'm at George State, I'm in the program, and I'm like, after this, I'm done. This is it, bachelor's degree, this is it. You know, and a, and a couple of professors pulled me to the side and said, Luis, you need to go get your master's. And I said, I could barely afford my bachelor's and I'm trying to get through this. And um, yeah, I don't think so. So they kept telling me that my last year, you need to, you need to get your master's. And I remember my professor saying, Luis, you can get a full, you can get a, you can get a scholarship to graduate school. This is what you need to do. Join the club, become the president of the club or an officer, go to a conference, introduce yourself, and they hand out money at these conferences. And I said, okay, I followed her advice. I joined the social work club. I want, I applied for the secretary position because I'm like, that's not a big responsibility. You don't have to, you know, run everything. I became the president <laughs> of the club because yeah, it didn't happen that way. And and no one else wanted to take the role. So I became the president of the club and I go to this conference. Um, I remember being there and I got this booklet and I went with a group of colleagues and I got this booklet and there's like over 180 schools on there. And I'm like, okay, I don't know any of these schools. And I know Harvard, I know, I know the, the ones you hear about all the time, I know Howard. And so I circle five and I remember Howard was one of the schools I circled. And I'm like, so I'm like, I'm only gonna go to these five tables. I'm not gonna spend my time going around to every single table. So I go to the five and it's pretty generic. It's like, hey, you should come to our school. Here's the packet. Um, we would love to have you there. And I'm like, okay, this professor lied. I, nobody's offered me no money. So the last school that, the last on my list was Maryland University or University of Maryland. I was like, you know what? It was the same interaction. And I said, I'm gonna be bold. And I said, are you, do you offer any scholarships? Because I'm gonna be transparent with you. I can't afford a graduate program. Um, and he said, no, I'm not gonna waste your time. We don't offer any scholarships here. But if you do, if you are looking for a scholarship, you can walk right over there. And the University of Pittsburgh, they, they give out money. And I said, okay. 
So I walk over and I look to my right and Georgia State, Georgia State's table's there. So um, the administrator that we went with, Renanda Deer, she's still at Georgia State. She was there on the right and across from Georgia State University was the University of Pittsburgh. Not, not on the corner, right across. And this was a, a ballroom full of graduate programs. And so I go up to the table and I'm like, what do I have to lose? I say hi. And this man with a cool hat, with a really deep voice goes, hello there, you know, what is your name? And I'm like, my name's Luis Perez. He's like, oh, where are, you, where are you from, Luis? And I'm like, well, I was born in the Bronx. I was raised in Brooklyn for some time. I think I left that out, but that's where my family um, lived um, in Brooklyn. And he's like, oh, really? I was um, raised in Brooklyn. Are you Puerto Rican? I'm like, well, I'm Puerto Rican, Dominican. He's like, yeah, I was raised by Puerto Ricans. And I'm like, oh, wow. And he said, what is your GPA? Mind you, I told you my GPA was 2.59. All right. By the time I was at this conference, my GPA was a 3.74. And so I told him, I'm like, I'm at 3.74. And he goes, okay, okay. Well, Luis, I could offer you $16,000 to come to our school. Um, but really what would help you out is if you have a 3.8. And I do that voice because he has, if you ever meet him, his voice is just so welcoming. He's like someone you want to talk to, you know, his name is Philip Mack. I didn't believe him. I'm like, you ain't gonna give me that money, you know? But at the same time, I was in shock. I was like, oh my God, this is God. I'm like, the whole way this thing happened, this is God. You know, and he's like, I'm a man of my word. Submit your application by this day and I'll have a response for you. And so I'm working, 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 working. I'm overthinking my essay. I must have rewritten it like 20 times, had like 10 plus people look at it. And I submitted my application and he calls me and he's like, Luis, I send in your information over to you in the mail, but I'd rather just tell you over the phone. You have been accepted to our school. And he told me what I would be receiving, which was more than what he told me in person. And he said, the only thing that we need you to do um, to receive a scholarship is to fulfill your um, obligation of bringing up your GPA up to 3.8. And I said, okay, I think I could do that. So um, in my last semester was my, my hardest one because I was freaking out. I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess this all up. That's where I was. I'm gonna mess this all up. I'm gonna mess this all up. I remember failing one of my mid, um, midterm projects but I still did everything that I needed to do to pass. And my GPA was exactly, and no one gave it to me. It was exactly a 3.8, exactly. Not a 3.81, a 3.8. When I got the letter, I already knew that, I already knew what I was receiving, but I had my nephews. I was like, hey, I want you to open this, you know, with me. I remember before I left and I used to change their pampers and full, their bottles and make sure everything was clean and the diaper genie, all that. And I remember I was so scared. I was like, oh my God, I'm leaving. I'm leaving everything I know. I'm leaving all my family. I'm going somewhere that I've never been. I mean, my mom, again, I'm bringing her up because I had to move in with her to save up money for like three months um, so that I could afford to survive for six months up there. So I was like, at least if I have six months worth, I'll be okay. I think I ended up with four months worth of rent and everything. 
And it was really, really crazy how all of this happened because I ended up staying at a seminary, um, the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, which the rent was very, very cheap. Um, and I got that information through an alum. And I'm in this new city. My sister, who's a brain surgery survivor, came up there with me and she helped me unpack. And I just remember like going into my room, which wasn't big. It was like a room with a kitchenette and a bathroom, but I was happy to have my own bathroom. I started crying and she started crying. I'm like, wow, this is really happening. You know, this is really happening. I don't know if you know this, but statistically, at least the last time I checked, people who have been in the foster care system, and I hope this number's wrong because I don't really truly believe always in numbers, but um, I remember doing a research paper and it said 1% of foster care youth who um, exit out of the foster care system, there's a 1% chance that you'll go to higher education and complete it. You know, so here I am in a room in Pittsburgh, crying on my knees, wow, this is happening, you know. And this is a sister I've jumped out of a plane with. So, you know, we have a deep connection. Um, and I really, really do love her. And I'm bringing this back around because when the women have been the fathers and the mothers and the grandparents I've never had, they've surrounded me. She stood for a few days. She drove up with me. We packed my car up and she stood for like three, two to three days. And I just remember being there by myself and I'm like, oh my God. The whole time I was there, I was, I was fearful. I was like, I'm gonna fail. I'm gonna fail. I'm gonna fail out of this. Like me being successful at this. I mean, I didn't have an instruction manual. I didn't know, you know, but at the same time I did fail. You know, like that was a reality. I failed my first semester. And in order to keep the, the scholarship, you have to keep your GPA up. I failed my first midterm in nonprofit uh, management. I failed. And I'm like, I freaked out. I'm like, oh my God, I have this money. They're going to take it away from me. I might as well just pack everything up in my car. I remember I just went to the professor. I was like, you know what? I totally didn't understand the, your instructions. And I had the opportunity of getting half points. And I'm mentioning this because there's a theme in my life where I'm the type of learner where I have to fail. I have to fall, which is probably not the best thing, right? But I have to make mistakes in order for me to know better the next time. The whole time I was in Pittsburgh, I was fearful, but I found people there. And I think that God sent these people in my life to support me because I remember I was like that anxious student, like school didn't start yet. And I was up in the office like, hey, y'all. Um, yeah, you're my advisor. <laughs> I was like, you're my advisor. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I'm back. Um, yeah, do you know any spots <laughs> like I can go to? And I remember Cecily Davis. Um, she was a rock for me. She was my field placement advisor. She just supported me the whole time. Um, and I learned so many things, so much more than I thought I would ever learn. I mean, I worked on a research project as a graduate research assistant on um, fair housing. I worked at a, I worked as a research assistant at, and in a coffee shop called Everyday Cafe. So if you ever go to Pittsburgh, I truly believe in their brand, Everyday Cafe. 
Um, they're a social enterprise, just giving a shout out because they got me through graduate school. <laughs> they literally got me through graduate school. Um, they give their all their profits after paying their bills, of course, goes to the youth programs in their neighborhood. I think I didn't really get it until my last semester that you can actually handle your business and have fun and enjoy life versus going to school, going to work and going to your back to your place. And so now I can say I've literally I met lifelong friends there and I learned so much more than I thought I would ever learn. And I graduated in 2017 from University of Pittsburgh School of Social Work. And my whole family went up there to see me and both my birth family and my adoptive family went to see me graduate. And it was a beautiful moment. It really, really was. Because if you ever see the Cathedral of Learning, which we call Kathy, it's a castle. It's literally a castle. My high school, I went to Redan High School. Shout out to Redan. Um, we had no windows. So I went, I literally went from a, like a, from Redan who had like no windows, zero applications in my senior year. And here I am, I'm mastered. I was hashtag mastered, right? And once again, in that moment, I felt my mom that day. And I just remember looking at my mom's face and I know I'm kind of confusing. It might be confusing because I have a mom who passed a mom now, but my mom now, she just, her, she was just so proud. She was just so proud. And she said it, she was like, I'm so happy that I lived long enough to see you not only walk across the stage, but walk across the stage four times. And it was a beautiful moment. And after that, <laughs> after graduate school, I was like, you know what? I never studied abroad. I don't know my culture. Let me just go to Puerto Rico. And so a friend of mine, Shanicia, and I, we went and moved to Puerto Rico for six months. And it was crazy because it was right after Maria. And again, here I am. And I'm like, Lord, how am I going to do this? I don't have any money, you know? And I said, well, I have enough to last me two months. If all fails, I'll just come back. Well, I stood the whole six months. I, I volunteered with the American Red Cross and I worked for a housing program there that I got through the American Red Cross through a contact there. And I, I, it was like my eat, pray, love moment. I ate so much amazing food. I prayed. I got touched in touch with my roots. Well, part of my roots. I went to like the mountains where my mom is from, which is Gaye. And so like when I, my birth name is Luis Perez, but when I got adopted, my mom turned to us and said, do you want to change your last name or do you want to keep your last name? Or do you want to change your name at all? And I said, you know what? I want to keep my name, but I want to add my mother's last name, my birth mom's last name to me, to my name. So everyone in Puerto Rico, and I didn't know this, but in, in the Latin culture, like they refer to you as your second last name. So everyone called me Conde, which is my mom's name every time, like in Puerto Rico, that's what people referred me to. And I remember going to the mountains one day in Calle, and it was really, really early because we had to go to like 10 houses a day and talk to the residents and see what they needed. 
And I remember it was like the sun was coming up and we were going up this mountain and they call them the Montanas de Tatas because they look like breasts. They literally do. You can Google it. And I remember going up this mountain and I'm like in the passenger seat and I just start crying. It was like a moment where I'm like, wow, this is where my mom is from. And I started crying because when you look out, you could just see all this greenery. I met people with the last name Conde while I was doing my work. And honestly, it was enough for me. I didn't need to say anything else. Like I didn't need to disclose like my mom or anything. I was just like, you know, that was enough for me. And I stood there for six months. My friend stood there for another six months. She got engaged. I was like, congratulations. <laughs> she, I thought that was awesome. Cause we were playing around. We're like, you're gonna get married, watch someone. You're gonna find your man in Puerto Rico. I came back to Atlanta and I just, I had a hard time. I went from paradise to coming back here from like everything being about just me to now, oh yeah, I forgot. I'm a person that helps everyone with everything. And I, so I, what I did was I applied for, to take my licensure test, um, even though direct practice wasn't my focus in my master's program. I studied for it. Um, I passed my test. I got my license as a master's social work worker. And with that, received a certification in school social work. For a year, I co-taught and I worked at the Y as a school, as an after-school program counselor, not making much at all. But after my certifications, I landed a job, a position, dream, the dream job as a school counselor, um, as a licensed master social worker can, can do direct practice. And it's kind of the, it's basically the same, not exactly how you get the credential, but it's the same. And so I worked there for a year and I learned so much about myself and about the students. I learned that I am no longer fearful of failure at all. And that moving forward, I want to be in full control over my schedule, over my, my position. And I want to be my, I want to be my own boss. That's what I learned. Where I'm at right now is I want to build family wealth. Um, and since I've been back in Atlanta, I've helped my brother um, start his own business. He's just as successful as I am. Um, even though he didn't, you know, he didn't go the education route, but he is extremely successful. And now I am reinventing myself as a senior business consultant at Transformation Lead LLC, um, a technology consulting firm. So, you know, big deal, right? <laughs> That's a completely different field. But one thing I do know is God is with me and I'm strong. I'm strong in my skill sets and I will always find the answer. Even if I make a mistake or fail at it, I'll, I'll always find the answer. I think earlier when I started talking, um, I mentioned my dad and how I was very upset with him for a long time. And in 2013, so I'm sorry, 2014, around the time I was at Georgia State, something just said, get in your car, drive to your dad, and go and get all your answers. And that's what I did. Got in my car. I called my sister. I said, give me the address. I told her to tell him I was on my way. And I stood there for seven days. 
And I remember going there in the last hour of my drive is a six hour drive that it turned into nine because I, oh, in my last hour was raining really, really hard. And I stood there for seven days. Um, and I asked him every single question that I could ever ask. And there is a language barrier because my Spanish is better today, but at that time my Spanish was very little. Um, so I had my translator out and I asked him everything like, why didn't you, why weren't you a better father? You know, why, were, why weren't you around? Why didn't you come see us even when you were, even when someone broke the rules and gave you that option? And he answered everything. He answered every single question. And I learned a lot about my dad and he struggled with his addiction. And I mean, he lost the love of his life, someone he created four human beings with, you know? And I forgave him, I forgave him. And later on, I connected with my, my mom's sister who they were like this best friends. She was like, yeah, your dad is, you know, she put it all on my dad. And I said, you know what? I forgive him and I forgive you too. I truly believe that God was with me every single, every, in every single moment, guiding me, surrounding me with, with people. You know, I owe, I owe a lot to my mother and my sisters and just my family. And, and I just want to be able to give back to them. And I feel like that's what I'm doing. Having gone with you, what you've gone through, how vulnerable that question is that, you know, that takes a lot of vulnerability. And I'm just, I mean, I'm thinking about my own life. I don't remember being that vulnerable, mm -hmm. like on my journey, especially like in college. I was like, I got this. And just like raw authenticity in yourself as an adult, thinking now as an adult, as your young self at that time, because now you, you understand it clearly. Like how much vulnerability do you think that took for you to be like, okay, I don't know how to get a scholarship. I don't know. I just was so happy to get the bachelor's degree. Like, I, like and to keep going. And to keep opening yourself up to people enough to let them know what you're trying to accomplish. I think it took a lot. I think I, maybe sometimes I didn't even know maybe that I was being vulnerable or keeping keeping it like extremely authentic. But I think I just shared, you know, I don't know. I think it's like the people that I met, they got, they knew, they knew, they just knew. And I'll give you an example because I had to keep it really authentic with myself and others. And I just remember, I remember this and I left this out, but I remember saying like, oh my gosh, I don't have enough in my bachelor's program. I needed $160 for graduation dues. And I was like, I'm not gonna have that in time for the deadline. And I share, I, I didn't even share it with the male lady, but the male lady was walking up and she was someone that I talked to from time to time, you know, just like, hey, how you doing? What's going on with you? And I think that's what it is when in your connections, not being vulnerable because you're asking for something, but just being vulnerable because People can relate to that. People relate. I don't know. It just builds. It builds connection. And this male lady, who I wouldn't say was like someone I was close with, went to her mail truck and brought back a check for one hundred and sixty dollars. Mm. And I'm sharing that because I think 
within my connections. I think I learned through time because I'm very prideful and I was raised like, if you're going to do something and you want it, if you want something done right, do it yourself. And if you want something, you need to be the one to go get it. But I think in my interactions, not all, but some, I, I was real with myself to say, okay, I need, I need to share this with someone, you know, and it wasn't easy because it's not easy. It's not easy to tell someone like, Hey, um, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. And this is my first time doing this. I'm not sure if I'm, I don't know what I don't know what to do, but then it it becomes easy when someone says, "You know what? I was there too." You mm-hmm. know, I remember feeling that way. Or when you meet someone who is a first generation student, you know, and then you connect with them on that. Um, because at Pitts, in Pittsburgh, I was a blue chip student, and that's a scholarship that I got. So I met other blue chip students, and we 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 connected on that like. All the people in our family, they haven't gone this far, you know. How do you how are you doing this? Or and I remember like I remember being in graduate school my first semester and just in a group project and this girl says, you know, you did two pages. Um, this is not enough. Like, what are you doing? Um, that's all the research you could find. And I'm like, yeah, that's all the research I can find. And I was beating myself up about it. I'm like, oh my God. And I remember sharing it with, I sharing the story with another person. So I had to keep it authentic with myself to then be authentic to other people, you know? And I was just like, and that's actually the friend that I, that we moved, that I moved to Puerto Rico with. And I said, I was like, oh my God, you know, this is what this, this girl said. And she's like, don't worry about that. Don't worry about her. You know? And when I got my paper back, all my parts were super, you did a super great job, you know? you fulfill this section, you know? So I think it took a lot out of me to be vulnerable because even there were times, and I've shared this with this story with students, there was, when I failed that midterm first semester of graduate school, um, I lost it. And there was another time where I missed a deadline. And in graduate school, an 80 is an F. And I had to be vulnerable. I got in my car, went to Rochester, and my cousin said, uh-uh, you need to go back, finish your paper. And I went to my professor and I said, I messed up. I, I missed the deadline. I just missed it. I, I'm so sorry. I had all this other, all these other things on my mind and I've been really going through it. I don't, I just didn't know. I don't know what I'm doing. And her exact words were, Louise, it's okay. I'm not supposed to do this, but you can have an extension. And that's, I think that's what it's about not being vulnerable for the sake of trying to get like, just sharing like, hey, this is where I'm at. And and for some, you know, for anyone out there, failing is a part of the process. You have to fail sometimes, but you have to keep it real with yourself. Either you're going to decide to completely throw in the towel or you're gonna at least communicate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one of the questions, I wasn't quite clear, clear on, are you the youngest? Well, from a birth family, I'm the second to last. Altogether, I'm the third to last because um, I have a baby sister. And then this, this story about the separation, how has that experience affected like how you enter like deep, intimate relationships? Is separation an issue or is commitment an issue? Okay, you went really deep there. <laughs> um, 
it definitely has had a, a great impact on my relationships. Um, again, it took me a long time to even understand that the people that adopted me, my family was my family, you know, because that separation is like, that's traumatic. That's traumatic. And in my discovery and journey of reconnecting with my siblings, the two, so my older sister, she ran away and my older brother actually um, left when he was 16, I left that part out. And reconnecting with them and with my father and his new family has been a lot, um, but we reconnected, but, but it has affected the way I form relationships and friendships. And um, I think throughout time I've learned, you know, you could trust people, you'd be vulnerable. However, I will say this, as far as romantic relationships, it has affected me um, a lot. I'm more, I'm more cautious, you know, I'm, I'm definitely more cautious. And I think it has a lot to do with just that separation. And that has nothing to do with romance, but it does something to you, you know, that young and you're torn away. So how has the trauma reveal itself when you are entering relationships? Like, because again, that's, that's a traumatic experience to experience it so young. So clearly you have a trauma response. Like, what is that like when you're like, okay, all, this feels all too familiar. Do you go back to that core, to your family, to your mom? Is it friends? Like, how do you exercise your core muscle around you when you're in that space where you're like, okay, this is all familiar trauma? I think the, the reason why I have formed the relationships that I have and the reason why I've been successful is because of my coping skills. Um, mm. And coping skills are like, there's so many, they're almost limit, limitless. It's almost like having a little bag of like tools of like, okay, well, I'm gonna use this coping skill today, even though I don't even know. You get so used to it that you don't even know which tool you're using it, you're using, you're just using it. But then, and this is deep, I think, there gets to a point where you no longer need the coping skills because those issues don't exist. You know? And what I mean by that is when you go through something that's really, really traumatic, your response can vary and you could literally go into a deep hole of in a space of negativity and you create these coping coping skills because you need to you need to survive from whatever you're experiencing but when you when you're no longer in the space of survival or worrying about can I trust this person is this person gonna hurt me or am I gonna lose this person because that's a big deal too I think I have a more more of an more of a challenge with losing people, you know, versus um, forming friendships and relationships and keeping them. 
you know, but that's a hard, it's, that's actually a hard question, but I will say that where I'm at today is like, there are certain tools that I had to throw away or just maybe I didn't throw them away. Maybe I put them in the closet somewhere, but I no longer need them because it, but it, because it no longer exists. You know what I mean? Like for a long time, I do really feel like I had a challenge in trusting people and making a commitment even to a friendship because of what I've experienced. But when you, like for me, when I've formed the relationships that I've formed and through, and through time, I feel like I let go of that. And I think a big part of that was forgiving people that hurt me the most, the people that I was angry at, at like my dad for a very long time. You know, I think it took, it took a lot for me to move past that and I still struggle with, with it. I'm just gonna be honest. I'm, I struggle with um, committing to a person in a relationship because that's like a that's a deeper, deeper connection. Um, but for me, if there's one thing I will say about moving past that separation is that I no longer like the the skills I was using to survive. I no longer need them because I'm not in the place of survival. I don't know okay. if that. That's good. You just you're leading me into my questions. <laughs> because my next question is when do you think you came out of survival mode? Mm. Wow. When did I come out of survival mode? Ooh, that's deep right there. Um mm. because you had mentioned where you are today, and like that is thrive level thinking you're like I'm wealth building I'm doing something completely new so at what point do you think you shifted out of survival mode to say I can thrive now that's a great question I think it began in Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. I don't think it fully hit until or developed like I didn't overcome that until I went to Puerto Rico it came back actually that way of thinking even just in 2018 I felt like I was in survival mode because I'm like okay I'm successful I have my master's I went somewhere for six months I did it I mastered yeah I got this degree and then it's like okay now I gotta find a job you know and that's a big deal because um I did go back in survival mode when I came back when did it hit me I I think it was like in stages, in waves. And I think that I got past it all earlier this year. If if I'm being completely honest, I think I went past it earlier this year. And what was that, what was that moment like? I think that moment was not, I think I know that moment is when I said, you know what, I don't need, I don't need a nine to five to be successful. I don't need to fit or put myself in a box to be successful. I don't need, like I can reinvent my t- myself. Um, it took me 31 years for that to click. I finally got it, finally clicked. And I think for me, like the way that I was raised was like, you go get your education so you can be better than I could ever, that I will, than, than I am, be better than me go out there. You don't have to work. That's what, that was my mom's response. You don't have to work. 
you don't have to move out. You don't have to just do, just go get your education. And of course I didn't listen. I wanted to do my own thing, but there were times I went back and I could, I'm telling you, I couldn't have done it without my mother. I really couldn't have done it uh, without the family support. Uh, so Louise, um, I, you know, we've gotten to know you um, because we worked at the same place together. One of the things that I admire tremendously about you is how you always meet people where they are. Where do you think that that came from? And why do you think it's important? Meeting people where they are, I think is, I think it comes naturally to me because I always like visualize myself as them. And that could be dangerous actually, especially if you're providing some form of therapy. But so you have to be careful, but I always like visualize myself as that person, you know? Like I wonder how would I feel if I was them? Even though you can't fully, you can't fully take that on. Like, but if you, like for me, that's what I, that's what I do. Like I put myself in the, I literally like visualize myself as them and what they're experiencing in the moment. And the reason why I do that, and maybe sometimes I do it more than, maybe I do it subconsciously, I don't know, but I know how it feels to be down and out. And maybe I don't know what the conversation's about, right? Maybe it's not that kind of conversation, but I don't know. I think, I think it just comes naturally to me because I know how it feels to be heard, you know? Yeah. There's times when, even with you and others, just listen. And like, for me, that's important. That's really important when someone's expressing themselves to just take it in, take it in and be present. You truly care when, if someone's telling you about something, you truly care when you're like, okay, what would I, if I was experiencing that, how would I feel? And I think that helps when you're like, you reflect, you're literally reflecting it's like re reflective listening, you know, because yeah. you're, you're in it with them. So fun fact um, for Deidre, I think Deidre knows this, or but for people who are listening, you and I, in addition to being co-workers, we are also dance partners and friends. <laughs> So for those who are listening and for Deidre, how it all came to be is Luis um, started, he was working at the school and I was like, I gotta go, I gotta go. And he said, oh, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going to this dance class. You should come. And he said, oh, okay, I'll come. And just like that, he came and he was a teacher's pet because um, <laughs> we were learning, um, we were doing these moves with our fabulous dance teacher, Ana Urente, and, um, um, and he was like getting it right out the gate. He was like a natural. And um, yeah, and so then it just became our happy hour every Thursdays, um, every Thursday nights. We went to 
dance class and we took this Latin ballroom class, um, like I said, at uh, Tara, uh, the, the Atlanta Dance Academy with Anna Urente, um, who is a world, world champion ballroom dancer, Latin ballroom dancer. And if you met her, you would not know it. But anyways, um, so Louise, what do you think has, we went through the journey of coworkers and friends and siblings and <laughs> dance partners. What do you think is the biggest lesson in our dance with each other? Well, from dancing okay um there so I have a lot on my mind about dancing so I remember when you first before I answer your question when you first invited me um and you first mentioned the class I was like oh lord I've never been able to keep up in any dance class um even though I was in marching band I just couldn't follow the instructions um, and I remember when you first mentioned it, and I honestly went because I was like, you know what? I was like, we were talking a lot about other things about, I was telling you about my mom, you told me about your mom. And I was like, I think we should do this together in my brain. You know, I was like, I think we, I think this will be good for us. You know, I think this will be good for me. I think I need this. I need, I need this. So I went and dancing is therapy. Oh my gosh. It was it released all the tension from my body. I remember the day, the first day, I, I felt it was like a long day and my, my brain was like scrambled eggs. I was like, I couldn't even sign a piece of paper to sign in. I was like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, where? Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like I could barely focus. And by the time I left, like my mind was clear. I was clear-minded. I was focused. And for me, dance, since now we're we're not beginners anymore we're intermediate level mm -hmm. <laughs> um dance i think reminded me to be myself and to be free the day we danced at school was like the day that i that i was reminded once again not to hide who i am because you know and i don't i don't mind i'm gonna say it here right now there's been there have been times where I have to put put myself black back in the closet, and in the last eleven months, that's what I did to myself. I put myself in the closet, and I hid that part of me because, um, for a job, basically, to to save face, and I will never do that again. And dance literally taught me, and I think I found freedom, like dancing of in a, a form like dancing was a form of free movement for me mm -hmm. I think it had an effect on my mental health it really really is and it does something to your psyche you know yeah. as dance partners you know I'm just throwing this out there for anyone who's listening and you have a dance partner <laughs> you have to know when to lead mm -hmm. yeah. and you have to know when to follow and I think dance also taught me how to be a better leader mm -hmm. in my world as an individual but also when it's time to say you know what I've got this I need you to trust me on this project um I know what I'm doing you know I think it, it had such a big effect on me 
if there's something I could say, you know, you know, I just want to say that to whoever is listening, and I know this is random, you know, we're all on our journeys, and um, we all have a story, and you have a story as well, and there's power, there's power in closing your eyes, visualizing yourself where you want to be. Mm. There's power in connecting with people, because people are People are resources, and honestly, we we as human beings, we connect with a lot of things, but we definitely connect with um, being vulnerable. You know, we just naturally do. We just do. So that's just what I want. I want to say to the listeners: there are no wrong paths. Oprah said it. That's better than me. There are no wrong paths. There are no mistakes. Everything's leading you back to where you're supposed to be. But for me, and for me and and my journey, every single time I've closed my eyes and visualized myself walking across the stage or moving to Puerto Rico or whatever the case may may have been, it has always come into fruition for me every single time. And maybe that's a coping skill. Maybe that's a way that I responded to my own trauma or you know challenges. But it, it, it works. It works. I just want to say, um, Louise, like, when we did, you, you really saved me. You're one of the people um, that saved me from myself. Um, it really gave me a lot of strength because especially when we were taking the dance classes and you would say to me, are you going to let me leave? are you gonna let me lead? And you fuss at me and say, are you gonna let me lead? Who's, who's leading me or you? <laughs> and, and, and you taught me in that and in that partnership to not only in, in just in so many aspects of that, of, I don't always need to be in control. And even I would say that that, I would say that that matters even on my spiritual journey as well because I've learned from this and one of those life lessons from you, you got to take a back seat and let God do the work. And I, you know, I'm just so appreciative of it. And I, you know, and I also appreciate in dance how we learn. I think it, it, it made me in being, having a dance partner made me be a better communicator because I, I don't think that we could have done, I mean, what we did and how we pivoted um, and said, we kind of told everyone, like, just move out of our way. We, we got this. And what we did to your point and what we did and how we walked and was like, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to assemble it. And we just naturally just fell into place. You're going to be in charge of this. I'm going to be in charge of that. And every time we had questions or something, we always made it a point to touch base. So I learned how to be an even better communicator um, when it comes to teamwork. And, and that sometimes you can, lead, you can lead from all sides. And sometimes we, lead, we led to get walking side by side. Sometimes you were in the front, 
I was in the front and, but we led and we did. And I think we, I think we learned in all of this also how to acknowledge, how to acknowledge and to see all the people that we, that we work with, who would show up every other week to help us. One of our colleagues, he was, he loved to be the person on the morning of, what do you need me to pick up? Need you to go pick up this, need you to pick up Ziploc bags and scoop rice. <laughs> and, and he, it just, something so small, but it, it, because it, it just added up and it made a huge difference to him or our colleague who let, loved to do the assembly for the boxes and the delivery. And I think in, even the parents and, you know, being with them, it just really are the students that we had that would come. And I think it just really made a difference. And, you know, so I'm glad that it was our, our final, our final act together as dance partners and our final act on the stage. We got to dance. Now we, when, when we come back, when all of this, however it looks like, we still got to compete in our, in our, um, bronze level ballroom combat. We were all ready. Mm -hmm. We sure were. We sure we were. Ready. We definitely have some more acts to do. Yeah. 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 And I appreciate you, you know, sharing that with me, everything, because um, I think dance did help us um, in our partnership, in our work, in our friendship in our um, big sis little brother, um, <laughs> you know, I just, I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful. And that's why human connection is so important. It's just, it's, it's very important. So I'm grateful to have a big sis, a Lauren in my life. And I would love to think that we have many, many, many more acts to do. Yes, we do. So Luis. Yes. Final question. If they were to make a movie about your life, what song would be playing in this scene? I love this question. And anyone who knows me knows that I love, love my favorite artist of all time is Whitney Houston. And mm -hmm. my song that would be playing in the background would be Step by Step. And the reason why I choose that song is because that I feel like it that song is my life step by step brick by brick you know what I mean like it just, and and every time I played in my car because I through all like I left that part out but through all my challenges and I remember when I was at my lowest I had her hit a, a copy of two CDs of um her top hits the um the cool down and the um, turn up version, I forgot what it's called, but it had all my hits on there. And every time I played step by step, it made me, I just connected with that song. And every time I had someone in my car and I played step by step, it encouraged them. So that's my song, Step by Step by Whitney Houston. That would, that's what would be playing in the background. <laughs> So that was your dear Luis. Luis. <laughs> I, I'm so glad that he shared his story. I thought 
that it was beautiful and I thought that he there's like a thread in his life about you know his family is his foundation but then like how he was vulnerable enough vulnerable enough with people to share his dreams goals or aspirations mm-hmm. and they were like sure I'll, I'll I'll step in and help you and that made him stronger and more confident on his journey so I thought that was beautiful and I love that he shared about you, your guys' relationship and how dance and what he learned through that and what you guys learned through that and how all of that came into play. So that what is, do you think about that? Well, he, he put an entry into the book of Caviticus. <laughs> so let me share from the book of Caviticus, chapter 6. Verse 28, dancing is freedom because you have to relax. Mm. Um, Thank you for joining us on this uh, quarantine version of the Fifth Position podcast. And if you liked it, we hope that you will continue to share with the people you know. Tell them they need to listen, rate, and subscribe, and then continue to share. So we hope you'll follow us. You can check out a little bit more details about everyone who shared this season. And you can check out details about Luis on our Instagram page. Until next time, stay safe.